Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, it's been a while since I put out a podcast. I've... uh, I've been really busy, and sometimes I just don't have the time to really put out a podcast as often as I'd like to. Uh, And since November 2nd, I think the last time I put out a podcast, I've had uh, quite a few activities. I went uh, scuba diving in the Cayman Islands for about a week, had Thanksgiving, and uh, been trying to put out another series of audio lessons uh, in the podcast that I actually make money at, and that's my Series 7 podcast. And if you are studying for one of the financial exams, the Series 7, the the SIE exam, uh, the Series 63, the insurance exam, and various other exams that are required if you want to work in the financial industry, the financial services industry, I have audio lessons for for quite a few of those exams and and by far that is my most popular podcast quite honestly. Uh, there's a lot of people that uh, like to study by listening to lessons instead of studying a book and that's what I put those those episodes those lessons out for. And <laughs> I sell 30 to 1 of those lessons compared to what I sell of the lessons that I've created for learning to sell the ASA 101, the ASA 103, and the ASA 104, the American Sailing Association audio lessons. In fact, I have one of my listeners that actually became a client after, I think after listening to those lessons, he was a physician in Florida and he liked the lessons and he liked me and he's a, he's an avid boarder and, uh, he became one of my clients. Of course, I manage investment portfolios, and that's how I make my money. So he sent me a bit of money to manage for him, and I'm taking care of that for him now. And he's going to be invited to go out sailing with me next year. So that's uh, that's what my day job is. If you're interested, you know, write me personally, Franz1 at MedSailor, and we can talk. I haven't uh, let any any moss grow underneath my feet, however. I've got, including this interview with Tanya Aby, I've got another five interviews in the can, two with Jack Andrews, and I'm going to be doing another one with Jack Andrews later today. He's getting ready to make the big jump across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands over into the Caribbean. So I'm going to talk to him today about his preparations that he undertook before before he leaves, or he's undertaking before he leaves. I've got an interview with uh, Manuel Marinelli. Manuel runs a small nonprofit organization for ocean research off his sailboat. I met him along with Jackson Crandall and Xanthi in Montenegro a couple years ago. We had a barbecue on his boat that night. And then I've got two with Jackson Cranfield and Xanthi, the producers of the uh, YouTube channel Finding Avalon. And Jackson was an early listener to this podcast, 
and he reached out and we again we met with him personally on his boat in Montenegro just after he bought his boat well now he's basically become a true blue water sailor and he's told all about his adventures and gives a lot of tips in his YouTube videos finding Avalon so I've got five interviews in the can and and this is just one of them so including this there's six interviews I've done over the last couple months and I'm going to be doing another one today I'm going to schedule those to go out about once every two weeks, which takes a lot of pressure off of me uh, to try to produce a podcast a week. I kept thinking by doing a podcast a week, my listening audience would increase. Quite honestly, it's been flat. And uh, I don't know what the solution to that is. Maybe I just don't have that big of an audience. I mean, I have a decent-sized audience, but I would expect it... I would expect with the effort I put into the podcast to put out a weekly podcast, which I did last year, uh, that my numbers, my uh, listening audience would increase, and it basically remains flat. So you can help me by getting your friends to listen to the podcast if you find this podcast enjoyable. If you don't, maybe you should unsubscribe anyway. And uh, if I see those numbers go up, I'll probably start doing more podcasts, but if they still remain relatively flat which may be the audience that I'm connecting with, and I probably won't. Uh, What I do notice is I get new listeners that go back and download the entire catalog, which is available on iTunes. And I think there's 50 episodes that you can download before you have to go to the website to download any additional ones. And and they will listen to them. So even that my first podcast that I did back in 2000, I think 12 or 2014, uh, I'm still seeing downloads of them on a monthly basis, which is interesting. You create evergreen content, and people go back and download your full your full library of of work. <laughs> and, and quite honestly, I've forgotten what I talked about way back when. I'd have to go listen to them myself. So this has really been a labor of love. I, I make a little bit of income off my sponsorship, but not as much as I really should for the effort that I put into it or, and, and the, the very specialized audience that this appeals to. This is not your general audience that wants to listen to, to a podcast about boats and boat gear and cruising areas and customs and that sort of thing. This is a fairly specialized audience. So I'd, I'd encourage you to support the podcast, and there's several ways you can support the podcast. You can become a Patreon, and I haven't had any new Patreons in the last couple of months, so it'd be nice to have a few more Patreons. You can give me as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want. There's certain rewards that go with the different uh, the different Patreon levels. So you could go to patreon.com backslash medsailor and become a Patreon. You can buy some of my audio products. And my audio products include, again, the audio lessons for the uh, ASA 101, the 103, and the 104, the American Sailing Association audio lessons. I cannot teach you how to sail in an audio lesson. You have to get out on the water and sail. But I can teach you what you need to know for the uh, written exam lessons on, on those examinations. You can do me a big favor by writing a review of the podcast, giving it a positive review. I haven't had any new reviews for quite a while, and every dog needs to be patted once in a while, and that's the way you pat this dog. Let's write a review. And one other way, you can, uh, you can also go back and buy my back catalog. If you don't want to download 
from the website or from iTunes. Uh, you can buy different categories, different – I think I charge about 50 cents per episode if you buy – uh, by my past catalog through Gumroad. And there's links to that at the website, which is medsailor.com. One other way, which nobody seems to be taking me up on, Jack has a few time, and so has uh, Neil, has become a producer of the podcast. And by a producer, I mean you go out and uh, either record a monologue of what your experiences are as a sailor and, and the information that you think is valuable to impart to to new sailors or interview somebody that you think is interesting and send the uh, mp3 file to me or upload it to dropbox and i download it from dropbox or google storage cloud or the cloud wherever it is and i would as long as it um, meets my standards which are fairly low I would put that in and credit you as the producer of that podcast. Not very many people, like I say, Jack and Neil Fletcher, Jack Andrews and Neil Fletcher have done this, but that's all. I'd like to have more producers of this podcast, and I think it would be more interesting if we had more producers on the podcast. So when I finally, I mean, you have to understand the work that goes into producing a podcast, and it's not just recording an interview. That's the easy part. Having a nice long conversation with somebody about what is interesting to me is the, the is the, is easy. That's the fun part. After that, I have to go back and listen to it again and edit it. Then I have to add the intro and exits. Then I have to convert it to an MP3 file. Then I have to add the MP3 tags, and then I have to upload it to Libsyn, which is the distributor of the podcast. Then I have to write the show notes, and this is what I hate. I am not a writer. So I have to write the show notes, and I have to enter the Libsyn link in the, into the show notes so that it actually gets syndicated. I have to do some SEO writing to try to make sure that the, the um, episodes show up if you're doing a search for this sort of episode. And finally, I have to schedule it to be published. So one hour, typically a one-hour interview, and there's really no interview that is less than an hour by the time I schedule it and everything else. Scheduling an interview can take quite a bit of time because we're going back and forth and back and forth and trying to figure out a time that works for both of us. Uh, one hour of uh, interviews uh, equates to about five hours of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work, just, just so you know. All right, that's enough on my side. Let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from biminis and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts, 
comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. So this email comes from Ken. Ken wrote, I want to thank you for a very informative podcast. It's been a great resource for me to gain knowledge on sailing in the Mediterranean. My wife and I are planning a return to the cruising life and hope to make our splash there. We are still in the planning stages, but have set a date of October 2021 to purchase a used boat in Greece or Croatia. Our first boat was a Catalina 36. We bought it in Juneau, Alaska and spent a season fixing her up and learning the ropes before heading off south to follow the fall. Well, we quickly learned that the most valuable lesson in sailing, that if it's to be much fun, it needs to be done in the proper season. We left the boat on the hard for the winter in Ketchikan and returned in June. We spent a most wonderful summer exploring the inside passage. Fall arrived again, and we tied up in Anacortes, Washington. It was at that point we needed to make a decision of either prepping the boat for offshore sailing to continue south or selling her. We decided to sell because we are not getting enough time for some of the other outdoor pursuits which we very much enjoyed. The plan was always to return to sailing at a later point. For the past 15 years and three kids later, We are readying ourselves to buy our next boat. I'm a helicopter pilot and fight wildfires for a living. My employment has taken me to Greece the last five summers. It dawned on me, why not buy a sailboat there? In my research, I quickly discovered through Yacht World that a catamaran could be bought there at a significant discount to the United States. So it's our plan in a summer or two in the Med and then crossing. So that's our plan, a summer or two in the Med and then crossing to the USA via the Caribbean, selling the boat on the east coast of the U.S. when we're all done. That brings me to some questions I have for you. I don't currently have any official sailing captain credentials. I know it's required to have a license to bear boat charter in the Med. How about purchasing a boat and flagging it as a U.S. vessel? Is one required to have a skipper's license? If it's not required, is it a good idea to have one? I realize there there are more ways to learn. My free time with my job and family commitments is limited, so I need to decide if that's a good use of my time. How expensive is it to store your boat on the hard and the med? We plan to spend April through June on the boat the first year. Croatia would be a ideal place to purchase and then leave the boat in Greece for the winter, returning April in the following year to spend the next year and a half sailing to the States. How hard would it be to outfit an ex-charter boat in the Med for a trip like we are planning? Big items, solar panels, and batteries. Thanks so much for your podcast and reading my rambling email, Ken. Ken, that's what a lot of people do. Go look at Finding Avalon and and uh, follow their their, their passage because they are doing exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> look at Jack Andrews. He's doing the same thing. And uh, Jack initially planned on spending a year in the Med and then sailing to the Caribbean. Well, he's 
doing the sailing to the Caribbean. Finally, I think that's after four years of sailing in the med. So don't think you're going to get through the med in any quick time. It's like roller skating through the Louvre. There's a lot of things to see in the Mediterranean. Uh, you can do it. There's lots of people that have done it. I run across many Aussies that are doing it. Not that many Americans that have done it or are doing it. Jeff Whitmer and his family is doing it right now. In fact, they're on our on their way right now. They're in the middle of the Atlantic. They've already left with the Ark Rally, I think, and are heading across right now, or we're coming pretty soon. And it's uh, it's a path well traveled by people before you. Uh, it costs well. Catamarans are going to be a lot more expensive. Number one to buy, and number two to uh, to moor in any location. Uh, I've been in the Mediterranean many years, and my for my little boat, 28-foot Bristol Channel Cutter, which is about 37 feet overall, I figure my carrying cost for a very well-maintained boat, uh, including insurance and a little bit of maintenance, not, not big items, but a little bit of maintenance and uh, mooring on the hard for the winter, is about seven to $8,000 a year. That's just your basic carrying cost. Now, you get on a boat and you go sailing, you're going to break gear. You're going to have to fix gear. Sails wear out, lines wear out, mooring lines wear out. Those are going to be additional expenses over the years. Setting up with solar panels, that's a capital expense, just like it would be for your house. And whether you get that out in the end on the other side is, uh, is questionable. You'll have to figure that out for yourself. Jeff Whitmer put in a uh, homemade water-making system, and he sent me all the details, handwritten notes on exactly what he bought and what he put in. And one of these days I'm going to get with Jeff Whitmer and uh, clarify a lot of his handwritten notes on what he bought. So, I mean, it really depends on how well the boat's been maintained. Remember, charter boats are used to uh, used very hard over the, over the period of their charter. I know moorings tends to turn over their boats every five years, and the people that buy those are other charter companies and run them for another five years. So typically you're going to be buying about a 10-year-old boat that's really had some uh, work put on it, some miles put underneath it. But nonetheless, uh, a lot of people are buying boats in the Mediterranean, and uh, they think they're going to do it in one season, but there's just so much to see in the Mediterranean. And you got to understand, from one end of the Mediterranean to the other is the same distances from New York to uh, to London, about 3,000 miles across the Mediterranean. So it's not a short distance. And the season for coming across the Atlantic is right now, in November and December, and maybe a little bit into January. But after that, your uh, your season for coming from east to west is uh, around our Christmas time. So I think you need to do some more research. It's easily doable. I'd reach out to the people I've talked to, watch their videos, and uh, go from there. All right, Ken, I realized after I put together that long rambling answer to your question, I didn't really answer a couple of your questions about flagging your, vo- about flagging your boat in the United States. Yeah, most people that live in the United States do flag their boat in the United States. I don't know that it's required, though. You also might consider flagging in, in some other more convenient country, and I'm not sure which one you might want to choose. Uh, as for a license, I've always had a license. First, I started out with a six-pack license, 
and then I got a master's license later on. They always ask you for a license when you clear into the countries of the Mediterranean. I'm not sure how sailors do it from America that don't have licenses. Most of the people I have talked to over the years have gotten at least some sort of a credential, either an ASA credential or a um, six-pack or a master's license. So I think just to make your life easier, uh, if you're going to be sailing through the Mediterranean, you need to get some sort of a credential. And I think the ASA 104 would be a good credential. It's not really a license, but I think they'll accept that as proof of uh, competency. The best one is a master's license, which nobody ever questions a master's license. And I think a six-pack license would have the same sort of uh, credibility. Uh, so, yeah, you do need to get some sort of a credential as far as I'm concerned. Thanks for writing, Ken. Another email came from Bonnie. Bonnie in England. Bonnie wrote, I believed podcast." were internet monsters. Then I decided it was time I faced them, and you were one of the first I found, and certainly the one that captured me. I find your voice very calming, and the contents are generally super interesting. I've been listening for under a year now, and I've learned so much. You inspired me and gave me the confidence to go ahead and purchase my new Bavaria 38. She's currently in Southampton, but I will eventually go to the med. You said in one of your recent podcasts that you often come to Europe via London. Well, if you fancy a couple of days stopover, you're welcome to stay with us. Likewise, if you fancy a bit of British sailing, feel free to join me in the Solent. It's the least I can do to thank you. All the best, Bonnie. Well, I reached out to Bonnie, and we actually had a Skype conversation, and she has a pretty interesting story to tell, so I'm probably going to try to get her on and tell her story about becoming a sailor. This year, I've laid out my summer sailing schedule, and it looks like I'm going to fly into uh, Venice or Milan. Spent about a week driving through the Dolomites. That was so much fun last year. At the end of the season, we rented a car and drove up through the Dolomites, and that was uh, an amazing area to to visit. And you can't see that from the water. You've got to get on in a car and go drive it. And then we'll get on the boat, and we'll work our way down back to Venice and spend some time there and hop down the Italian coast for a few couple hundred miles and then hop over back to Croatia and then work our way down through Croatia and then hop over to Brindisi and Ortanto and then hop back over to Greece and probably leave the boat at the end of the season uh, near Previsa. That's my plan for this year. So my plan is to fly in and out of Milan or Venice, because those seem to be fairly easy to get back to from my ending point. In January, no, excuse me, in February, I'm going to be taking a month to go visit New Zealand. If there's any New Zealand sailors down there that want to meet, I'll be doing the South Island for about three weeks and the North Island for a little more than one week. And in the North Island, I'm heading up to Bay of Islands to visit my friend, Doug Schmuck, who owns Doug's Opua Boatyard. And he's uh, he's been a friend for 20 years, and it'll be good to see him because I haven't seen him for probably about 15. He Actually, more than 20 years. It's 30 years. He was the first person to take me out on a Bristol Channel cutter in Newport Beach, California, before 
I bought my Holland deck and built my boat. Well, that's enough on questions. The second one not wasn't really a question. It was a letter, and I appreciate that, Bonnie. We'll do another Skype sometime. I enjoyed talking to you, and you have an interesting story to tell. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com, or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. Well, today we're going to have an interview with Tanya Alibi. Well, today we're going to have an interview with Tanya Aby. Tanya sailed around the world when she was 18 years old. At least she started out when she was 18. And we're going to have an interview with her. I'm pretty sure I talked to her probably over 10 years ago on another podcast I tried to create, which was called TravelTradeExchange.com. But I was asked to interview her again, and so we're going to get her on the Skype and have a nice conversation with her. I'm on Skype with Tanya Aby. Is that how you pronounce your, your last name, Tanya? Rhymes with Krabby. Abby. It's Abby. Yeah, okay. it's a Swiss okay. name, so it's like Abby, but it's Abby. Abby. Tanya Abby. It's Abby Road. Abby Road. Okay. That's right. Good. Or Westminster. We can go on. <laughs> and also I have with me a friend of mine, Tyler McCabe. Tyler was at my presentation at the Alta Club a couple weeks ago and asked me if I'd interviewed you. And I told him I had, and I wouldn't search my past audio files, and I couldn't find one. But I still think I did interview probably over 10 years ago for another podcast I had called Travel Trade Exchange. And because when I called you up, your voice sounded familiar, where you live sounded familiar. But I'm getting old, so I forget everything. So it's just as much fun to talk to you all over again. And Tyler's a sailor and lives in Salt Lake. So I'm going to read from your website, which is tanyaabby.com. And uh, you've, you've written a book about your adventures. And in, in May 1985, when ta- ta- Tanya, Tanya was 18 years old, she cast off from the docks of South Street Seaport in lower Manhattan and sailed 27,000 miles around the world alone on her Contessa 26 Varuna. Concerned about her lack of ambition, her father offered her this opportunity as an alternative to college, and she took him up on it. With just a cat for company, she crossed the Caribbean, the South Pacific, and the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, to the Mediterranean, and the North Atlantic, stopping in 23 countries along the way on November 18, in November 1987 at 21, Tanya returned to New York City a solo circumnavigator. So we are going to explore your adventure, and I'm going to open up Google Earth and follow along with you. And uh, 
I don't know how long this will go. We may end up. I, I, I interviewed Rory McDougall, and he sailed a 21-foot catamaran around the world a long time ago. And to get through his whole story, it took me seven episodes. I don't know if you've got time for that. We'll go as far as we can and, uh, and uh, pick your brain and just go from there. We'll go as far as we can until people start coming back in the house and making noise. And- <laughs> All right. So describe to us where you're at right now. I live in Vermont. I am sitting at my computer table looking out at the snow. The, what is it, November 7th today? Yeah, yeah. It's our, it's our first snow. I just got my snow tires on. Um, And... What else? I mean, what do you want? You want to know what my life is like right yeah, what, now? You know, what's your life like now? We'll, we'll, we'll get to the story of the tra- travel, but what's your life like right now? In a nutshell. I still talk about this trip, obviously, because that's what we're doing now. I've got every once in a while the slideshow that goes back to that old story, and I tell it, and it's kind of followed me through life. But at the moment, my I, most of what I'm doing is... um. I try to write still, and I have a column with a sailing magazine, and I take people sailing. I uh, set up trips, and we'll take people sailing in different charter locations around the world, and I now take care of my dad a lot. Okay, okay. What we come down to, he lives up the road about a mile, and um, I'm here for him, and I live <laughs> to his old best friend Fritz too. So, well, that's great. That's great to have somebody there for family. My sister took care of my mother until she passed away this summer, and it was a lot of work for her. But, but uh, it made my my mother's life very very worthwhile. So, it sounds like you're dealing with an aging parent, just like we have at the. the yeah, it's a common story in our age group. Yeah, yeah. You know, you are you're still talking about your story, which you wrote, and. The other one that comes to my mind who was an inspiration to me was Robin Graham when he sailed the Dove around the world. He started from the West Coast, and you started from the East Coast. But mm-hmm. uh, but he, as soon as he came around, he sort of dropped off the face of the earth and really has not been seen much since then. And uh, and so you are still reliving your dream and sharing your dream with others, and, and he shared it in a book, and that was pretty much the last that we've really heard of of, uh, of Robin Graham. So I'm glad you're still doing that. I mean, it's a good story. Why wouldn't I tell it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start out at the beginning. Your father thought you'd had no ambition. So let's delve into that. And, and you just take it away from there. What? And the fact that my father said I had no ambition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Compared to him, <laughs> nobody does. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I was the oldest also, so. I was in the crucible of everything that a child is expected to do. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing the traditional high school to college route. I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to an alternative high school. I wanted to graduate early. I wanted to maybe travel. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And he decided at that point in my life to get a boat and bought one in England and was planning to bring it back to New York via a lot of countries, and it sounded really great. And I went on the trip with him. It, was, it wasn't it was just a matter of going on a trip. There was a lot of relationship repairing to do there because 
there was there'd been a lot of trouble with the teenage me and my father. And it was on that trip that we kind of reconnected, or definitely, not even kind of, we reconnected and he saw me fall in love with that whole way of life and it was his idea to give me this boat and a challenge. So you weren't resistant to it at all. You sort of grabbed the bull by the horn and said, yes, let's do it then, huh? No, I probably, that lack of ambition translated into not the, you know, I wasn't like all excited and gung-ho about the trip. It kind of happened to me. And I, it, things just kept, things just kept falling into place. I said, yes, we found a boat. People weren't trying to stop me from doing it. People thought it was a good idea. I thought, okay, I'm going to have, you know, I knew at that time already at that age that if I did it and survived before leaving, I knew that if I did it and survived, I'd have a really good story to tell. So so did did you, let me just interrupt real quick. Did you, what planning went into this in terms of food and water and, and resources? Or did you just go? I I didn't just go, but it wasn't like this incredible expedition full of planning and lists and research. I took a couple courses in navigation. I worked as a bicycle messenger in the city in New York to save up money. And um, I read a bunch of sailing books. But ultimately, I knew that I'd have to leave and see what it was like out there. There was only one way to find out what it was going to be like, and that was to go and get on that little boat and see how see how the first passage went. And that's kind of what I say in the talk every time is leaving New York wasn't really about leaving to go around the world. It was about getting to Bermuda. And then leaving Bermuda was about getting to St. Thomas and leaving St. Thomas, you know, it was one leg at a time. And to just look at this thing as a circumnavigation, that was just way too big to think about in its entirety. But those those waters in uh, on the way to the Caribbean are, are fairly treacherous. Right? The waters in the Caribbean? Yeah. Well, that before I got to the Caribbean, I had to get to Bermuda with the um, maiden voyage for many people from the East Coast. Their, their first ocean passage is out to that little speck, and you have to cross the Gulf Stream, and that's pretty gnarly weather and current. And, and for example, when we came back from the trip with my father on his boat, the last passage was from Bermuda to New York, and we had. Definitely among, if not the biggest storms in my life at sea. It was humongous, and there were other boats that went down in it, and we had two crew members on the boat that when we we were within range of another sailboat that had to be uh, rescued by the Coast Guard. They'd been dismasted, and the engine died. And the people on our boat said that they wanted to get off, too. We kind of navigated through a storm to get these two guys off the boat. Couple, still a couple days out from New York. So getting through that storm. So I'm looking, I, I'm, I'm looking at the layout of the boat. It looks like it's a fairly comfortable boat. It's got a uh, modified full keel is what it looks like to me with an aft-hung rudder. Um, what, was the, what was the displacement of the boat? Oh, my gosh. Now you're asking me oh, really hard. Just, I mean, was it... I, the displacement, I forget. Okay. It was a six-foot boat. I don't know. 
Okay. About two tons was the weight of the boat. I don't remember. I can look it up. No, don't worry about it. It's not that important. But it looks like he had a modified full keel, which is great for going straight, but terrible as a general rule for backing up. Because I've got a full keel on my boat, and it, it goes straight really well, but it just doesn't back up worth, worth a damn. So. No, and that the engine never worked either, so it wasn't like I had to back up a lot. Anyway. So when you crossed to Bermuda, where do you remember crossing the Gulf Stream? Did that give you any trouble, or did you have good weather when you call, crossed the Gulf Stream? No, I had, it took me two weeks, which is crazy, because it normally takes people about four or five days. And um, I had three storms, two flat calms. The engine broke. I couldn't fix it. Um, I don't know. It did. It was. It was. A, it was a very steep learning curve. I was figuring out how the boat worked, how the self steering worked, what it felt like to be out there in the middle of the ocean by myself, and that was the biggest unknown too. It was, um, you know, I didn't know was I gonna how how I was gonna react to that, how I was gonna feel, and I ended up actually liking it. Okay. All right. <laughs> The was figuring out how I would feel about it. And I thought it was pretty cool to be the only person on the whole planet that knew where I was at any given moment. And, to, you know, I was the boss of everything in my little universe. So it looks, like- so it looks like that's about a 660-some-odd-mile nautical mile passage from yep. that. Was it? What was the point of sale? Was it a broad reach? Did you have to tack? Uh, oh, God. Non, it was changed nonstop. Okay. Was, I had fronts. It, to get to Bermuda, there's no. It's not trade winds. You just use the fronts. So the window clock. There's a southwesterly flow at that time of year that you can kind of hope for. It's not. It's not a guarantee. I don't remember. I know that I had uh, really strong winds and no wind, and then wind in between. So it was every point of sail. And I had trouble with my navigation. Yeah, that was back in the time of, um, I think, actually, we had the Loran back then. Is that correct? Yeah, that existed. And there was also the Satnav, but I didn't have either one of them. I had the uh, Sextant. Okay. So oh. so had you, uh, had you learned to use the Sextant ahead of time, or was it learn as you go, sort of? In combination. I had done noon sights on the boat with my father. Mm-hmm. Success, successfully. And then I took a course in celestial navigation in New York. But that, I just, it's trigonometry. I didn't get it. Okay. But I had a um, book, a, a manual. Uh, learn to celestial navigate, do your celestial navigation manual step-by-step that I had and used regularly but couldn't figure it out still it was it's basically addition and subtraction and being able to go into tables with numbers and extrapolate from them right right it's not that complicated once you're trying to sit there and figure it out but i was it ended up being months later that i found out the problem was my sextant not me oh really so your sextant was not accurate then huh no, I had one of those plastic ones, which are easier to use, lighter to hold. And mm-hmm. I figured I was being the ding-dong and couldn't figure it out. I would never thought it would just be the equipment, which it ended up being. The, it wasn't giving me the right angles, so I just there was no way to ever get the right uh, good lines of position. Oh, wow. So, so how far off would you typically be on your line of position then? 
I didn't know. I didn't know where I was, so I didn't know how far off I'd be. <laughs> I, um, I didn't. I literally didn't know where I was. I until I'd see a ship and they'd give me my position, and then okay, that's a that's a um a waypoint right now, but that quickly changes. And then you're back to dead reckoning and not knowing exactly where you are. And I had an RDF signal, uh, uh, the RDF, um, an RDF, mm-hmm. a radio finder. And I was able, and that signal in Bermuda broadcasts for 150 miles. So I was able to head in the general Bermuda direction until getting within 150 miles and following it in. Okay, okay. Well, that's interesting. So, that's that's so different from what we do now with pinpoint navigation, and you know where you're at all the time. So nonstop. Um, I do a yearly return trip from Bermuda now since oh gosh, about eleven years, and um, I just know how because of all that information we have, I know how strong that Gulf Stream is and what the eddies are like and how unpredictable. I, it's it, it's not always in the same place. It changes and the winds and systems that come through will alter its course too and whatever. It's never, it's not the same at all from year to year. So gosh, I had no idea how, where I was being taken in those days. So even if I thought I had a position, that current could have been dragging me along. You know, when I sailed across the Atlantic, I, I left from Hampton, Virginia. And of course I should have stopped in Bermuda, but I'd always read how expensive it was to go to Bermuda because Prices are high, and I thought, I'm on a budget, so I skipped Bermuda and went straight to the Azores from Hampton, Virginia. And that was one of the biggest mistakes I made because every low off the 40th parallel came and blasted me off the East Coast. And had I gone down to Bermuda, I would have had a delightful sail from Bermuda on up to the Azores because I talked to a lot of other sailors that had done that. And uh, I was being penny-wise and pound-foolish, it looked like, in in hindsight. But... uh, no, I never went to Bermuda myself. So from Bermuda, you took a, yeah. So you've got two long hops. The first one is a couple uh, six hundred miles, and then probably about seven hundred miles to your next stop. Is that about right? Mm, I think I think it was like nine hundred down to the Virgin Islands from Bermuda. Okay, okay, like that. Um, yeah, no, and then that was the next big trip, but that one was headed toward the trade winds, so. So that was an easier, that was a much easier uh, route. Well, it was regular weather. It was still beating, though. It's The wind is forward of the beam headed down there. So there, it was, it was hauled in tight, pounding down there, and I still couldn't figure out my navigation and found St. Thomas only because I saw a boat that told me the night before I thought I was going to arrive that I was on course for Puerto Rico. Hmm. Okay. Huh. So you made it. When did you uh when did you replace your sextant? When did you finally discover it was your sextant and when did you replace it? Or did you? I actually didn't even have to replace it. I had a good one on the boat too. I had a plastic one and then I had a metal Freiburger, an aluminum one, and I just I didn't even think to try the Freiburger. I just thought I was being obtuse. Hmm. Okay. So in the Galapagos is when I finally sat down with some friends because I only found the Galapagos Islands because I saw a fishing boat who gave me my position, which was way off from where I thought I was. And then it's 3,000 miles till the next group of islands, and the South Pacific is full of reefs. So 
I needed to figure out what was wrong, and I'd made friends with another boat. Well, good enough friends with the people on another boat to not be embarrassed to admit that I was having a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we sat down with their calculations, and you know, here I was ostensibly the single-handed circumnavigator. There was a lot of pride involved with that, and you know, shame to go up with some to somebody on a dock and say I don't know how to navigate. I can figure this out. All the books say how easy it is. This manual says it shouldn't be too difficult, so I I'll, I can do I can add and subtract. But then with these friends, we sat down with all my calculations, and indeed I had learned how to do all the um, plotting. And I had it, I had it nailed. I could do it inside out because I'd done it so much. But it was that's with, with those guys, I figured out the sextant was the problem. And once I took out the other one and tried it, it was perfect. So what sort of uh, when when you were by yourself, how did you deal with the uh, with the uh solitariness of being being by yourself did you enjoy it or did you did you crave company a little of everything wasn't one long happy fest nor was it nor was i always i I, it was it depended there were times where i wish i could have been with people there were other times where i really felt awed by what i was able to do by being alone out there you know, you're simultaneously the center of your universe and a speck of nothingness, hmm. which is kind of a cool dichotomy to live constantly, 24-7, day in and day out. So I got that. I I, I felt that coolness, but um, also didn't always, I often wished I could be sharing with somebody else, not mm-hmm. be alone. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot. I did a lot of reading, knitting, crocheting. Staring at the water, cooking, staring at the water, tail changes, staring at the water. A lot of that. Yeah. And, and the reading. Yeah. What type Tanya, of. The, Go ahead, Tyler. Tanya, the uh, getting materials to knit and crochet is that something you usually take on a vessel. So, is that something that you brought with you, or, or were you able to pick that up along the way? Uh, I brought a bunch of it with me. I, with my mother, my mother was sick before I left, and I used to go visit her, and we just sit there and um, knit. And she loaded. I was loaded up with all the equipment. I didn't learn how to knit out there. I already knew how to, so it was just taking something I knew I could pass the hours with. So I got a lot of that done. When you uh, would go into port, how long would you typically stay in port? Would you? Uh, you know, would you spend a week, a month, a couple of days? What, you know, because you're, you're, did you start out trying to sail around the world or was it just legs that you said, well, if I don't like it when I get there, then I'm going to move on and maybe come back? Or, or did you actually start out with the goal of, of trying to sail around the world? Like I said, I, I left with the goal of sailing around the world, but broken down into its parts, it was mm-hmm. about to the next landfall each time. It wasn't, I wasn't going to get around the world without those parts in between. Right. So I stayed in Bermuda, I don't know, a week. I stayed in St. Thomas two weeks. I was in Panama probably several weeks. I don't remember. Maybe even a month between getting through the canal and then visiting the islands on the other side in the Pacific before heading off to the Galapagos. In the Galapagos, it was something like, I don't know, five to seven days because you're not really allowed to spend time there without a cruising permit. 
And then the Marquesa is about a month. Then Tahiti, I spent, oh gosh, I don't know, about four months there. I waited out hurricane season in Tahiti. Delightful place to, to, to weather it out, too, huh? A really nice place to be 19, waiting out a hurricane season on your own little boat. <laughs> Loved it. Well, too many questions. Don't you have to have visitors' visas for these? Pardon? What was that? Countries? Don't you have to have visitor visa? Visitor so, visa for some of these countries? No. If you are the captain and you, the boat is your bond. So just be, have, being alone, I did not need a visa. And uh, back then, no. There, I know that you need visas now for, like, French Polynesia. But back then, I did not. And or if you needed the visa, it was issued on arrival. You didn't need it beforehand. Okay. Talk to me about getting through the – is there anything that, that sticks in your mind, uh, any highlights of your sail through the Caribbean that you want to share with us? Sail through the Caribbean? My sail through the Caribbean was um, straight from St. Thomas to Panama. Okay. It wasn't, there were no islands. Any nope. – any big storms or anything that you remember? Uh, big storms. It was the trade winds. It was my first, you know, at that uh, getting to the St. Thomas the last couple of days was the introduction to the trade winds. And then it was nice to know that the weather was going to be pretty consistently from astern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, with a quick downwind passage, what was the excitement of oh, Panama, trying to find the Panama Canal without knowing how to navigate? That was that was the excitement there. But there's a lot of shipping heading in that direction, so I was able to get positions and follow them in. So getting through the canal, what was the, what was the process? You had to have line handlers with you. Was it easier back then than it is now? Um, I did it again with my boys when I did the trip in 2007, 8. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being the same. What the, now? Actually, when I did it with the boys, we were. It was maybe the last year that the marina was open in Cologne, so that was easy because you just pull in there and you can set everything up with the transit and the line handlers, and you get an agent that helps expedite all the paperwork. Same thing. It was the same. Um, yeah, you just pull in and you got to start. You start filling out forms, getting measured lining up um, the agent and the schedule and the pilot and the line handlers and it's a bunch of coordinating to do it was no it was it was easy enough okay bureaucracy yeah okay all right so so through the so tyler did you have a question okay so after you got through the panama canal uh then your next stop is the galapagos Yes. Okay. And the Galapagos, you you said you can't stay there more than a few days without a cruising permit. So you didn't have to get a cruising permit to, to stay there? No, you're allowed to stay any stop anywhere for 72 days to reprovision, make repairs. My engine was broken. The poor captain said I, would, I could have a couple extra days to try and fix it. And I had those friends, that other boat with the French guys on it, who I figured out my navigation problem with. And with them, we tried to figure out my engine, and it wasn't working. The uh, fuel injection pump had broken at that that time. It was the injector. Okay. What kind of engine was it, just out of curiosity? Mm, a Book. Okay. Not familiar with that particular brand. Yeah, they're good engines. It was just um, 
operator, ignorance, and the conditions. The boat was very wet boat, so corrosion was a big problem. And just figuring out how to work an engine and then staying ahead of the corrosion and the maintenance was all part of the learning. Okay. I got, after this trip, I got pretty good at troubleshooting diesel engines. I learned a lot from my mistakes and neglect and just plain old having a lemon. The engine was, it was a lemon. There were things that, I mean, when the injection pump broke, that wasn't maintenance. That was, that was, that was just bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. How old was your boat when you bought it? Brand new. Oh, it was brand new. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was built in Toronto, and there were a few modifications made based on the voyage she was supposed to be taking. So, brand new. So that was definitely a big plus was having a new boat to fully trust. Mm -hmm. Everything's new on this. The rigging is new. The rudder is new. The Fittings are new. It's like that. The, the, the chances that something was gonna break felt slimmer. I mean, that's not. That's never true on a boat. Even new stuff breaks, but felt they, the chances felt better with all the new new equipment. So from the Panama, you had a long hop. Then that that was probably your longest hop at that point in time. After after not after Panama, after the Galapagos. Yep, that was three thousand miles. Where was your landfall then? The Marquesas? Mm-hmm. Yep. Which one again? Hiva Oa. Okay. Marquesas. When yeah, you're... That, when you're... That was, so now we're in the Southwest Pacific, right? Right. South, the Eastern Pacific. Okay. Or, you know, from getting from the east into the center there. It's a long stretch. You go without a lot of... There's nothing... There's nowhere to stop between the Galapagos and... The Marquesas, and then once you get there, then there's a lot of island hopping to Australia. So, uh, that, uh, approaching the Marquesas, you had to start watching out for reefs, didn't you? The Marquesas were fine. They're, they're not so reefy. They're pretty new islands and rocky, high islands, so they're easy to see from far offshore. But that whole crossing, I practice the navigation endlessly got really good at it you can tell when you've got in a good position when you've got when you've got lops that worked out really well they'll cross perfectly and then you can be pretty sure that you're where you think you were and i did practice not i practiced endlessly crossing and when i i was pretty spot on after figuring out the sextant was the problem Celestial navigation was fun. It was actually a pretty cool thing to be able to do. And one of the things that we've lost with the GPS and, you know, technology that we have nowadays is suspense. <laughs> 24 hours wondering how far I'd gone, what course we'd traveled, and having that one little moment of knowing where I was was so, um, what's the word, um, transient i mean it was it was it was one it was was ephemeral mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was just this one moment of knowing where i was and the boat still moving yeah quickly no more there quickly somewhere else so in marquesas you probably had ran pretty low on supplies 
Was it, uh, is that where you'd reprovision? And what type of supplies would you typically, uh, what, 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 would, what would you eat as a general rule? Bruno is very small, and there was no refrigeration. No ice could last a couple of days. So it was pretty basic. Rice, pasta, cabbage, onions, garlic. There are vegetables that'll last a long time I, that I've learned. Oh, in the Galapagos Islands, also, I learned about um, the pomplamoos, or what they're called now, or pomelos here. Those mm-hmm. were, oh, that was, that was, that was the greatest new food to have those huge um, grapefruits. Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of them on the boat. You could take hours eating one of those. But citrus and cabbage and onion, like I said, onion, garlic, root vegetables. Leeks lasted a long time. Beets lasted a long time. And I would steam up pots of vegetables and some kind of starch, rice or pasta, pretty and tuna, tuna fish, tomato paste. Okay, so so tuna was your main protein source then. Uh, There were corned beef, canned corned beef. Okay, I would always make a acceptable meat sauce with pasta. Did you drag a fishing line behind you? Uh, not so much. I did a couple times. I caught, oh, I don't know, two, three fish on the whole trip. I didn't like having to deal with a fish in the cockpit. Okay. It's bloody, messy. And, um, they're also big when you catch them out there. I never, there was never any way for me to eat the whole thing. And I didn't really like dried fish, fish jerky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that great. So, nope, tuna fish in a can. So along the way, did you ever have anybody sail from island to island with you, or were you always just going by yourself? I was alone, except in... Oh, you're stealing my question. Oh, sorry, Tyler. Go ahead. That's okay. No, in uh, Pango Pango in American Samoa, I took a lady that needed a ride over to Western Samoa, and it was 80 miles. Oh, okay. And did you, did you have to go back and so, do it again? Well, I didn't think it, it didn't even occur to me that it would be a problem for, you know, I didn't do this trip for a record either. I was just muddling along trying to get from one place to the other. Just it was about getting home. It wasn't about getting home with a record for anything. It was about having the adventure. But um, I so I didn't think I saw, oh, this lady needs a ride. I gave her a ride. Oh, that's fun. I had one overnight with somebody here helping me steer. Well, there wasn't even any wind. We motored the whole way, so she was steering. <laughs> and, um, and the engine worked for that trip. But um, then when I got to Western Samoa, somebody said, we know that you took a passenger with you for uh, this last 80 miles, and you should go back, or we're going to report it to Cruising World. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was some, it was like, it was accusatory. Like I was trying to get away with something that I never even thought I was trying to get away with. <laughs> I didn't know that there was a, a board you're supposed to report to on, on solo round the world uh, passages. <laughs> you know, there was no rule book or anything that I had ever looked at or cared about. So when yeah. I got the message, that was. I just got I just got so indignant. <laughs> did did you uh, have to recall from reading the book a while ago? Did you go back and do it again, or did you continue? 
No, no, no. I was, I was said, no way. I'm not going back. I don't care about the record, and I don't care what these people say. No way. So, I did not. And in the end, I didn't even care. It hasn't changed my life one bit, I don't think, except that now I have one extra little bit of a story to tell. Yeah, that makes it more interesting. <laughs> it's just, it's just another, another detail. But no, I, 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 that's not a regret I've had. That I never regretted not going back. Talk to me about your self-steering gear. How did you set that up? Do you know those self-steering gears at all? Well, you know I, I built my own, yeah. Mine was a Monder, and it was okay. nice. It was, a, it was the best piece of equipment on the boat. Yeah. Those things great. So, so that's a servo pendulum type of uh, self-steering okay. gear, right? Yeah, it works with a wind vane that you set into the wind, mm-hmm. and then these lines that come to the tiller, and when you go... I mean, you know how it works. It just works with the wind. Yep, they're wonderful. And uh, I agree with you. They're the best crew members you have on the boat is the self-steering gear. So on my boat, I typically hand steer out of a port, put on the uh, wind vane if we're sailing, and put on the electrical autopilot if we're, not, if we're motoring. I don't, right. like, I don't like spending hours at the tiller myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to make one, one comment, if you don't mind before we get too far off of the passenger you picked up. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, so in, in my book, you circumnavigated the globe. The, oh. the uh, you know, picking up one passenger for an 80-mile, uh, you know, section and is, is nothing compared to the 25,000-plus that you went. So uh, I'm with you. All no right. way. Thanks. No way. Don't bother. Don't bother. <laughs> if I had been so committed to making this a record thing, I suppose I would have also had a rule book. There, you have to go a certain distance of, I don't even know what they are, but all these round the world um, races and, um, you know, record breaking voyages need to go above the equator. You can't just go around the capes at the bottom. You have to come back up north a certain amount and go back down to make uh, There's rules. Of course, there're going to be rules. You can't just do what you want and then say I did I, I get a record. You have to follow the rules of that record. But I, 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 I never wanted to hear your take on on that whole section. That was thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I did not read the manual. <laughs> Once again, but that's the way I learn. I'm not a manual reader before the fact. I always read it afterwards, after I've made the mess. It's like, oh, that's how it should have gone. But... That's why she's Tanya Abby. <laughs> so, from the Marquesas, you're going through a lot of coral reefs, and you've got to be really careful with your navigation at that point in time. What what uh, what would you do about sleep when you're getting into tight navigation? Would you stop, heave to? Uh, how would you deal with that? Marquesas were, like I said, they're new islands. They're not surrounded by reefs. So finding them were easy, was easy, and sailing among them was easy. That was day sailing, eyeball navigating. Yeah, but I'm talking between the Marquesas and French Polynesias. There's a, yeah, yeah, that was getting through the Tuamotos, and yeah. that was... I did not stop there, and it was just a matter. Of, it's just a night, okay. of having them or a day, whatever. You're past them quickly. They're not that huge, those at all. Okay. 
I and you know that passage actually I stayed within sight of the French boat. We sailed in tandem. Okay. And I had what do we do? We must have charged my batteries enough so that I could talk on the radio periodically. That's a week long trip. That's, that's a bit of a hike to get from the Marquesas down to Tahiti. So I don't remember. That was that was that was not an overnight. So I, I'm surprised you wouldn't stop in the Tomatoes because that looks like a delightful area to stop in. But yeah. oh, I didn't. That the the reef thing was a little scary. Yeah. And without an engine, I didn't have an engine. Ah, okay, I can understand that. So to get in and out of the passes, I didn't. I did not feel confident. Oh, plus the other thing wasn't the, the, the main thing is in the Marquesas, I got, my mother was dying. That's where I found out that she was dying. And I really just wanted to go home. And it was about getting to Tahiti and on the first airplane back. Okay. So you sailed right into Papayete. Is that where you went? Yep. Yep. Tied up the boat on the waterfront there and... Which does that's all different now. I went back and with the boys in 2008 and Papiete. You don't come in there with your boat anymore. You have to go to one of the other um, lagoons on the island with marinas and facilities. Mm. Boats don't just go into Papiete anymore. Really? Where do they go now? To the east or west of it. There are other the lagoons on either side of the main harbor. Okay. Okay. Light okay. craft. But the downtown Papillete waterfront place that I went with Varuna, that doesn't exist anymore. Did you uh, did did you fly home when you got to Papillete? Immediately tied the boat up, got an airplane ticket. I might have even gotten an airplane ticket from the Marquesas. I don't remember, but I went I went home pretty quickly. All right. That, that's what I describe as being the hardest part of the trip was to come home and leave my mother, leave my family, leave everything that was um, familiar and safe feeling, leave New York, get back on the airplane and go back to that boat with three quarters of the world to go still. How long did so you, you, had, you hadn't met your future husband yet? No, had not. So how long did you fly home for then? It was just two weeks, I think. Okay. It was over as my sibling were around. Everybody was there. My mother was there, of course. That was a low point. Okay. In French Polynesia, so you stayed, now where did you spend the bulk of the hurricane season then in Tahiti? Where, what island did you go to? Or did you hop around? I was in Tahiti mostly and went to Morea several times. Okay. Back and forth between Tahiti and Morea. Um, there was a lagoon, uh, Arue, and that's where I had a little mooring and just hung out there and did. Re- we had to got the engine taken out of the boat and rebuilt, um, put in solar panel. I just did a lot of little projects to make um, Varuna a little more livable. Okay. So once you got your, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine. So I imagine you, during most of your passages, you had to, to sail without any running lights because you couldn't charge your battery to keep them running. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I had a kerosene lantern. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, there were, there were no, there were no LED lights. There was no way I could have kept lights on. That bum engine and the little battery. 
Okay. So you got the engine working when you were in Tahiti. Is, did it work the rest of the trip, or did it still keep conking out on you? It worked until... I worked pretty well up until um, Bali, and then it conked out right in the pass going into the harbor there. Of course. <laughs> so I can't remember if there were, there, if there were problems between Tahiti and Bali. I, 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 I was able to figure them out, but in... Bali, it start the problem started again there. Okay, so was that your next big hop? Was then between from Tahiti over to Bali then? Uh, uh-uh. no, no. I stopped in from Tahiti to Morea to American Samoa, Western Samoa, Wallace and Futuna Islands, to Vanuatu to Australia, and then up the Great Barrier Reef to the uh, Torres Straits, and then from the Torres Straits to um, Bali. Okay. All right. So there's a whole story there. There's a whole whole part of the trip that we're we're sort of skipping over. Is there anything we need to to, uh, to bring up on that part of the trip that you remember as being interesting that you'd want to share with somebody? Well, like Tyler said, that's where I met my future husband in Vanuatu. So I guess that's an important feature. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get into that. That's uh, really the you know. The- part of the Pacific is what I find most interesting about your voyage. Well, it wasn't just uh, the the future husband. It was also I got my new cat there in the same, in Vanuatu. So I had the cat that ended up living with me. For, he, he outlived my marriage to Olivier. His name was Olivier, is Olivier. Still alive? The, uh, the ex-husband, yes. Oh, no, Not the, the cat. cat. Okay. The cat died at 21. All right. So I 21 oh, years. That's, a, that's an old cat. Wow. Right? And he's amazing. He survived a lot. He's the best cat ever. Um, that was that was big. And then Olivier, of course, too, who ended up being the father of my two offspring, my two boys. Okay. And he lives up the road now a couple miles, and we... Raised the kids together, separately, but together. Um, we're still friends. It's okay. Do you, do you sail it all together still? Together sailing? No. But I do take... No. I don't sail with anybody. I go off for work, and I sail with um people who come sailing with me. But I did do the one trip with um, the boys. I took them out of school for a year in 2007 when Nicholas was in... Um, eleventh grade and Sam was in eighth grade. We, they, I took them from the Caribbean to uh, Tahiti, French Polynesia, and then Olivier took them from French Polynesia to New Caledonia. So they got a little taste of the life that we had known before having kids, and the thing that actually put bread on the table. We, Olivier and I, would go off sailing, doing deliveries, doing our trips, and come home. And the boys were always home. So they got a taste of that life, and when they came home, actually, Nicholas decided he wanted to, uh, well, he wanted to be an electrician. He wanted a skill. He wanted to be a plumber or an electrician, and I talked him into going to Maine Maritime, where he got his engineering degree, systems engineering, mm-hmm. and he, and then Sam followed. They both did the exact same thing, so now they both work on the, the big boys. Okay, so they they work on big ships then, huh? 
Yeah, they're both in the merchant marine as engineers. So, yep, they work in the engine room. They keep those big. They know how to. They know how to fix diesels. <laughs> so you, you didn't follow. You didn't follow your father and say, "Okay, now here we're going to get you a boat, and you're going to go by yourself." With the boys? And, no. no. Sending those those two out on their own. No. So I had my own boat a couple year about three four years ago. Um, I bought it and I forget 2013 or so and I had her for several years and that's then and then the stuff with my dad started happening and I couldn't and I, I, there were a couple other things and I was like okay I wanted to sail go sailing and do another some kind of trip with her but then I just couldn't leave anymore the window shut and I didn't want to winterize her anymore either it was I didn't like that whole part of sailing in New England was having to winterize the boat every November October, and then relaunch and go through the whole process in reverse again in the spring. Ugh, what a lot of work and money. And so I thought I would take her down to the Caribbean and sell, uh, give her to the broker where I had, who had, I, who I'd bought it with, bought her with. So I asked Sam, the younger son, if he wanted to house it for me while I was gone. I was going to be gone for a couple of weeks to bring the boat down. And he said, why don't I take the boat down instead of you? That would be fun. I wouldn't mind having a trip like that. He just finished school and he hadn't gotten a job yet. So I thought, okay, sure, why not? That sounds like a good idea. And went down with him and got the boat all ready and provisioned and started looking at the weather reports, waiting for a good window for him to go out. And um, it was just one huge front and system coming through after another just really bad weather one after the other. And I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't have a conversation. I couldn't, I was a wreck until I told him I couldn't do it, that he, I couldn't let him go. I pulled the plug on him. That's what I did. I had a boat. I had an engineer of a son. He was 21 or whatever he was in and I didn't let him do it. Do you do you do you regret that? Huh? I said, do you do you regret that? No. Okay. Oh my God! Who knows what it would have happened? I just kept imagining his lifeless, hypothermic body out there being tossed around. And even if he did make it, and it was would have been fine, that boat would have had so many broken things to fix with all that weather. When I got down, when it got down to the Caribbean, like no. I can't, no. <laughs> no, I do not regret it either. And he's fine. He went and got a job instead. Yeah. So did you just end up selling it locally then? Yep, I did. And the girl that bought it, she's on her way down south with her right now. She's take, she's, she's probably in Florida by now. When you took your kids out of school and went sailing, was it what type of boat was it? Was it the same boat? No, it was a 36-foot steel boat. Custom. Okay. Um, yeah. Built by a naval architect in his backyard in South Africa. And then sailed across by another guy. That boat went around Cape Horn with a, a stockbroker that wanted that experience. So he outfitted her for that. And then and then and then I came along. Okay. So uh, on your other boat, your steel boat, you did you circumnavigate that as well? You didn't, did you? No, we took her from the Caribbean to New Caledonia and then sold her there. Okay. Okay. Was it hard to sell her in New Caledonia? I don't think of that as a major 
yacht buying no, area. Super, super uncomplicated. Well, I had a guy that um, had said he was interested from just through reading about it, and um, I found I found that New Caledonia was easy to do that transaction. Oh, okay. That's... As far as all the Australia complicated, New Zealand complicated, as far as tax and import duties and whatever else, it was all it was complicated, but not in New Caledonia. It's easy. Oh, okay. So that's a re- so it may become a place to exchange boats in New Caledonia. Then, so would it be registered in New Caledonia when you sold it, or was it uh, registered? And so he got the documentation. We transferred it over to him, and it was it was a transaction we did over here. And then he just picked it up as new owner and left with her. Oh, okay. Easy enough. Mm-hmm. Easy cheesy, and nobody yeah nobody cared. It's fine. It's easy. So heading up the river in. Into Borneo, you lost your engine. Tell us about that. Up the river, no, in through the pass in Bali. Bali, Bali, Bali. Okay, good. Let me let me get that up here. No Borneo. Um, I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't a huge drama. I guess I had the sail up or something, and I was able to go in and drop anchor and then fix the engine. I don't even remember. It wasn't a huge drama. It was just, oh, great, here we go again, and, of course, in the most inconvenient place. And then at that was the point where the end, the repair that had been done in Tahiti just became another set of problems that followed me into the rest. It wasn't until I got home to New York. kept having other problems. Learned from each one, but there was one problem after another. Mostly with the engine, then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, also in the peripherals, there was a shaft problem. There was a stuffing box problem. There was a starter problem. But no but no rigging problems, no mass problems, no not, nothing on the actual boat. So the boat was well-founded. It was just your problems were with the engine, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah she was a good boat. There, of course, there were always little things to fix and maintain, but overall, she was Pretty basic, pretty well-built, okay. a solid, beautiful little boat. All right. So you hop across the Indian Ocean. Uh, where did you stop in the Indian Ocean? Bali, Christmas Island, Sri Lanka, and then Djibouti. Okay. So pretty long hops then, it sounds like. Yeah. It was like 28 days to Bali and then a week or something to... Or so to uh, Christmas Island, and then thirty days or so to um, what we call it, um, Sri Lanka, then another twenty-seven or so days to Djibouti. All all month-long trips. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking. So, did you, did you go up through the uh, the uh, the oh, Suez Canal then? Up the Red Sea to the Suez Canal and to the Mediterranean, yep. Did you have to worry about the pirates as much as we do nowadays? No. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of sailors that have come up through there, and without exception, they've always all been attacked at one, in one form or another coming up through there. That I've in Kenya, you had no you had no instances of any attack your entire no. time. No, nothing. Hmm. All right. I never had I never had trouble with people. There was this one story that I tell over the years of, with that question about um, 
being off the coast of Sri Lanka, becalmed in the shipping lanes with the engine broken and getting a tow from a fishing boat that came within range. And I hailed them and they came and they tied a line and towed me. And um, I was one of them came on the boat with me and the other one was on their boat driving and the guy, I, I, they had like a fish hook on their boat. It was just bare bones, nothing. These are, it's a completely different world for me with my nice little modern boat and all my things. And I gave them t-shirts, whatever. And it was sign language. They couldn't speak English. And I always use that as the story of, well, you know, something could have happened that day. It didn't. But it was the one time where I felt like something could have. And nobody would have ever been any of the wiser. I would have just disappeared. So, I don't know. That was like my, 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 the story of my brush with potential danger. And it was totally potential. It wasn't, it was just completely, you know, I thought it could happen here. And it didn't. And then I tell this story over and over again because I got to have an answer to that question. And then um, one day I get a, uh, a letter from that fisherman who did not speak English, who had to go to a letter writer to compose this message, just saying hi, asking how my life, that he still remembers seeing this girl out there on the ocean on her boat and has always, has never forgotten her and wonders how the rest of life has gone since then. That's nice. So wrote, that was beautiful. And so I wrote back and we developed a little, you know, uh, back and forth um, communication. And then... The tsunami happened. And with my family, we were able to send them funds to get a new fishing boat because they lost everything. They lost their home, family, boat, everything. Oh, that was... that was. Oh, here we go. Here's the one story that I used as the possible bad thing could have maybe eventually have happened to me and not even close. It ended up being a nice story of another friend. That's great. Where did you uh, where did you make landfall in Sri Lanka? Town called Gaul. Okay, down at the south end. Then I'm looking at Google Earth and zooming in on it now. Yeah. Okay. Nice little harbor there. Mm-hmm. Or big harbor actually. So, did you spend much time there? Did you <laughs> did do you do much land based travel when you get to these places? Um. Uh, you know, not some in, in Sri Lanka. I actually did because my father came there. Oh, okay. and that was the first time I seen him since Bermuda. And he thought because I had taken so long to get from Christmas Island to Sri Lanka, he thought he had to form come and form a search and rescue mission. So he bought an airplane ticket. And when I got in, he, he decided to come anyway. Okay. Uh, we traveled around the Sri Lanka a bit. We took a road trip around the island for a week. Beautiful. Loved it. Mm-hmm. And it was cool to have my dad be there. He met Olivier also. That was, and, you know, and knowing what it's like to be a parent now, the main reason he came was probably to meet Olivier. He liked to use the search and rescue mission words, but really it was more parental who's my daughter hanging out with concerns. Now was Olivier flying to meet you up or was, but he was, he wasn't sailing with you. He would fly up and meet up with you in different no. locations. He had his own boat. Oh, okay. Okay. So was he sailing along with you or what? 
we tried when we did one passage where we tried to stay within sight of each other, and that only happened because um, after three days at sea, we crossed paths, and it was a flat calm. And then after that, we just tried to stay together and developed a, a watch system so that somebody was always awake, making sure we didn't drift too far apart to see the other boat. And we need, we didn't have VHF radio, so we'd have to bring the boats close enough to holler across the water. Okay. He, and um, we didn't, we, we, well, it wasn't until the Red Sea, the last bit of the Red Sea, that we stayed within sight of each other. But okay. it was too hard. It was hard. It was too hard to tandem sail. Yeah, it's difficult. To keep watches and keep within range. It, was, it wasn't easy. So from Sri Lanka, you head up and go through the uh, Gulf of Aden and into the Red Sea and through the through the uh, Suez Canal, yep. and then into the Caribbean, into the Mediterranean. Oh, excuse yep. me, I'm sorry. Into the into the Mediterranean. Yeah. And then stopped in Crete, pick up some more fuel. Literally, like an overnight fuel stop to Malta, where I spent a month. Where this is where Olivier also ended his trip. He was leaving his boat in Malta, and he would fly back to Switzerland and eventually to New York to meet me when I got back. So that was the end of his adventure. Did you and, on Crete? Did you go around the north side of the island or the south side of the island? I didn't go around anything. I dipped in. We had I we I sailed past Crete, and I needed more fuel, so I just popped up into one. Actually, there was a little cleft in the island and headed right for that, thinking, okay, there will be a place to drop anchor. And it was a little village. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the enticing feature of that village was, for all the tourists that were there, was that there were no roads. Mm. So there was no fuel. There were no gas stations. <laughs> <laughs> so- I, had to take a fer- I took a ferry from there to... The ferries that unloaded the tourists there. I took one to the town that had a filled up um, fuel, filled up the jerry cans, and brought it back. Okay, but I'm just—I've been to Crete. I'm just trying to imagine. Did you go on, on on the south side or the north side? The south side. So uh, Tyler just came on. He said he had to get off the phone, and he wanted to thank you for letting him ask you a few questions. He had to uh-huh. leave us. So there we go. All right. So we've been talking. I do, I do want to say. Th- I do want to say thank you fascinating person you are uh everyone should read maiden voyage thank you yeah (laughs) all right thank you so much it's an honor franz thank you no no problem tyler thanks for joining us let me know if there's a future episode i'd I'd love to participate okay so tanya we've been talking about an hour now do you have Mm -hmm. more time or should we try to come back for another one or what are your thoughts um, I don't know how much longer you want to talk. I have, I'm leaving next Tuesday. Okay. For 10 days. So if we don't well, connect, then we can connect after that. You like? Okay. I've got, I'm going to be out of town all next week anyway. So why don't we try to reconnect? We will start in, in Crete and continue on from there. I think you've got enough of a story to tell to get another episode. If, if you have the time, I'd love to continue uh, exploring your your round-the-world voyage. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll finish up today and get back to you probably a week from next sometime, okay? 
Okay, so we'll just, well, I'm not back till the 23rd. So we'll talk on email about it, yeah? Yep, we will. Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey, Randy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's going to finish up this episode of my interview with Tanya. And we will continue on when we can both reconnect in the next month or so. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. <laughs>